From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And you know, if you're going to pick one week out of the year to listen to an education podcast, it probably should be Education Week at the Idaho Legislature because that's uh, what we've been covering all week as uh, the college and university presidents uh, descended on the state house virtually. Uh, to talk about uh, the past year and talk about their budget requests. Uh, Sherry Avaro was there in person on Thursday to talk about uh, her budget request and talk about uh, the past year in education. So it was a full week for both of us, Clark, and a lot to get to here. It certainly was. My feeling was this is, what, the end of the third week of the legislative yeah. session? And it really picked up this week. Uh, and that started early in the week. As you said, it was education week. Uh, we're starting to see all the budget requests uh, come forward and be debated. But I thought you had a really interesting analysis piece, Kevin, that you published on Thursday at the homepage, www.idahoednews.org, taking a closer look at higher education and some of the lingering debates, unresolved issues. But you also kind of followed the journey that the college and university presidents had throughout the week. And so let's just start. I think your piece from Thursday is a great place to kind of kick off today's podcast. But let's focus on higher education, because to me, I thought that was a lot of really, really interesting uh, discussions and hearings this week on higher education. Yeah, it really was, Clark. And I think my two takeaways from Education Week as it regards uh, higher education, and I think maybe you can even say this too about K-12, is you have a lot of sentiment and a lot of reflection on the events of the past 10 months, uh, how education, K-12 and higher ed both, really had to pivot in, in, in a matter of days, in a matter of weeks, uh, from face-to-face to all online instruction. The, the events of March were so dramatic and had such immediate impacts on the education system and had immediate impacts, too, on how we spent education dollars and how education budgets uh, were, were transformed by the virus, whether it's you know losing revenues as the colleges and universities did when campuses closed and you know students uh, got refunds on their room and board and events were canceled and what have you. The cost of trying to move from face-to-face learning to online learning and you know, how that you know means getting more computers into the hands of, of K-12 students or, you know, kind of retooling college campuses so that you can get students back, you know, to face-to-face learning, whether that's, you know, putting money into student testing, uh, virus testing, uh, kind of refiguring, reconfiguring classrooms. So I think the, the, the first big thrust of Education Week was just to look back at where things have been the past 10 months and how much of a of a transformation was required, not just a budget transformation, but you know, a, you know, a structural transition in the way education was delivered. And I think that message was pretty well received by legislators. I think as legislators you know, heard education leaders talk about how, how teachers really had to change their approach, how educators really had to you know, pivot on a dime. I think that message was pretty well received by legislators. I think legislators were uh, were appreciative of the efforts that uh, education leaders have made to try to keep the 
process going, how to keep the education process going in one manner or another, and you know, keep the doors open as as much as possible uh, this fall and, and heading into uh, winter and spring. I think that was one of the big themes, but I think the other big theme was there are financial challenges that are lingering and have been worsened by the by the pandemic. And you know, I was struck by some of the numbers that uh, Kevin Satterley, the president of Idaho State University, uh, delivered uh, on multiple occasions. I heard this in a couple of committee meetings, so it's uh, pretty clear in my head here that the four four-year institutions had to either cut or reallocate $77 million, you know, spread across four institutions. That's a lot of money and eliminated 493 positions over across four institutions. That's a lot of jobs. That's a lot of positions. I think for Boise State alone, it was close to 200. And what he said was, you know, we we answered the call. You you told us to to get the budget in line. Circumstances forced us to put the budget in line. We we did this. And in some cases, it's really not going to be sustainable. And uh, Cynthia Pemberton, the president at Lewis Clark State College, who is probably the most optimistic college president I've ever heard in my life. I mean, she just, she exudes enthusiasm even when times are tough. And she was even enthusiastic, you know, talking about times being tough uh, this past year. But she point blank told legislators, look, we're in the people business and we're going to have to start reinvesting in people. Yeah. So it was a it was kind of a two-pronged message that I heard over and over this education week, you know, celebrating and marking that people really stepped up and, and had to, to change and, you know, you know, restructure education in real time. I think, you know, didn't Sherry Barra say at one point on Thursday that, you know, we've disproven this rumor that education is slow to evolve and, and slow to change. I thought that was a, a, a good point, you know, in, in 2021, as we look at the, how education changed in 2020. I think that's a, a valid argument. But, you know, so you celebrated and marked and, you know, gave, gave credit to people for making a change, but also talking about, you know, it's, there are challenges that are, that are still looming because of what's unfolded these past few months. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I mean, I picked up on that both from President Pemberton and, and Satterley talking about, hey, we, we weathered the storm. Uh, we were able to tighten our belts. We're able to do this, but it's not. We're not going to be able to do it forever, and it's not consistent. Just real quick, one of the proposals out there from the university presidents is that they would freeze uh, basically undergrad tuition again for the next year if the legislature approved the budget recommendations that the governor put forward at the beginning of the month. Right? Did that come up much this week? It came up a little bit. Um... Kevin Satterley talked about it a little bit at one point, and it's worth noting, you're right, that the presidents of the three universities have made that uh, pitch. So we're talking about ISU, Boise State, and U of I have said, we'll freeze tuition for a second year if uh, Governor Little's budget request is approved. Lewis Clark has said, yeah, we're going to have to raise tuition. We are just running too lean, and we're just not sustainable. Again, you know, what, what Cynthia Pemberton was talking about, about investing in people. She feels like she's going to have to. So that came up a little bit. And I still will want to see how that really plays with legislators. If legislators feel like, well, that sounds like a, a reasonable meeting us halfway kind of a proposal, or maybe some of them will say, well, now we're not, you know, we're going to make our decisions and, you know, we're not going to be, you know, 
we're not gonna be pushed around here. We're gonna make our, our budget decisions uh, irrespective of the tuition decisions that, that you all are gonna have to make. So I don't know, we'll see how that plays out, but it was definitely an element of it. But you know, if there was any more proof that you needed that the higher education budget is gonna be a, a hot topic this year, I think we uh, we got a flavor of it this week. Well, yeah, that's the thing that the higher education budgets have been a, a tough sell, you know, very specifically in the Idaho House. They killed two versions of the higher education budget last legislative session before moving on. Um, but one of the things, Kevin, that you did this week, and, and, and I got to a little bit, but you tracked the university presidents as they went from committee to committee from the different hearings and you paid close attention to... Uh, Boise State President Marlene Trump and the week that she had. And I think much like me, uh, Dr. Trump is probably glad that it's Friday right now. But tell me a little bit about just kind of the journey that the presidents had this week and sort of what the reception was like and what the questions were like, because they made the rounds through about three different committees, didn't they? Yeah. And, and you covered house education with the four university presidents, including uh, President Trump. So you heard it firsthand. Um several members of House Education asking uh, President Trump some pretty pointed questions about campus politics and you know, free speech on, on campus. We knew that topic was gonna come up at the State House and we knew it was probably gonna come up in House Education. But what I was struck by is, as you wrote about what uh, happened in House Education on Wednesday morning, I covered Senate Education on Monday afternoon and the four presidents, again, via Zoom, were uh, presenting before the committee. And the question of social justice uh, on the Boise State campus came up, but it was it was really brought up in almost a, a, an apologetic way. Carl Crabtree, the uh, Republican from Grangeville, said, well, we have to talk about the elephant in the room here, and we have to talk about social justice. Can you give me a sense? And I... And I remember how he worded it. He said, you know, can you give me a sense of how Boise State is addressing this perception, this perceived emphasis on um, social justice issues? I mean, really, you know, as gently <laughs> posed question as you could get. And, you know, President Trump was pretty, uh, was pretty well rehearsed and said, look, we're, you know, we are committed to teaching our students how to think, uh, not what to think. And we're going to try to you know, foster an environment where everybody you know, has equity and equality, whether that's, uh, you know, and that includes you know, a first-generation student from rural Idaho. Everybody's welcome and everybody's uh, you know, backgrounds are, are welcomed and celebrated. So it was a very, you know, it was a very polished answer. But really, I thought the questions were the most interesting thing. And I think it foreshadowed that there is a cadre of conservatives in the House who are still really upset about higher education funding, higher education politics, and the Senate, as we saw last year, a lot more sympathetic to higher education. Once a higher ed budget got through the House after three attempts, it passed the Senate unanimously. So I think that politics is still going to play itself out. And you know, I wrote that story on Thursday, and you know, I don't feel like you know there's Nostradamus here, but I kind of suggested in the story Thursday that well. Trump is going to be before JFAC, the budget committee on Friday, and you know we'll see how it plays out. But yeah, I kind of not surprised at how it played out. Um, she got several tough questions from Ron Nate, a uh, Republican from Rexburg, Priscilla Giddings, a Republican from Whiteburg, 
two really hardline conservatives, you know, two, you know, two of the, you know, so-called liberty legislators. Um, Ron Nate, most of the points that he was trying to make were pretty much in lockstep with a white paper that the Idaho Freedom Foundation put out in December. But it was a pretty pointed conversation between uh, between Nate and Trump. And at one point, uh, the chair of the committee, uh, Rick Youngblood, admonished Nate and said, look, we are here to talk about budgets. We're here to talk about numbers. It's not a political policy committee. So, you know, we got to restrict questions to the budget. So, you know, it was a pretty testy hearing and not an unexpectedly testy hearing, but I think it also sort of sets the stage for what we may see as the the higher education budget works its way through the legislature and when it finally does hit the House floor. Yeah, that's a good point because these were just the hearings. These were just the budget requests this week. And JFAC will keep conducting these budget request hearings up through, it's like February 18th or 19th. And then they transition into the actual budget setting mode, right? So we're still a few weeks away. Right. So this is just... And we've covered a lot of budget presentations, you and I, over the years, and a lot of times they're pretty tame and they're pretty, you know, straightforward. And the uh, the agency head, you know, points out a few highlights. They talk about a couple of performance metrics. Uh, they talk about a couple of line items in the budget, and you know, they get questions, maybe a couple of questions from legislators, and it's a pretty uh, a, a pretty painless process. But uh, for Marlene Trump on Friday, and, and also for Scott Green, the, the University of Idaho president, on Monday. Some questions about Black Lives Matter, about social justice issues, about um, uh, Giddings asked Green about the University of Idaho hiring a diversity officer in the College of Engineering, and Green had to do some, you know, he did some research or he had staff do some research and get back to him that that day, that morning during the hearing uh, with word that, well, this isn't coming from state money. This uh, This position was funded through donations from alums and from Micron Technology. But it just gives you a sense that there's a lot of unease and dissatisfaction and distrust of the higher education system in general. And that's uh, that's all centered right now in the House. And it's all centered with uh, this core of hardline ideological conservatives. Right. And you were right to flag JFAC as a committee to watch before this session because you pointed out that there are a couple of more conservative uh, liberty legislators such as Giddings and Nate uh, who were appointed to JFAC this year and that could change the dynamics of the committee a little bit. But you also pointed out how the Idaho House in particular uh, is just a little bit more conservative uh, than it was last session because of uh, the November elections and because of a couple of Republican pickups. One of those pickups was Representative Ron Nate, who was a former legislator who lost a couple of years ago and is back now and is back uh, on JFAC and was one of the ones asking those questions uh, this morning. And, and so, a definite ideological shift to the right in that race because uh, Nate unseated uh, Britt Raybould, who was a first-term legislator. Uh, she also sat on JFAC for her one term, much more moderate Republican, much more of a mainstream Republican. Uh, you know, Ron Nate's a, an unabashed conservative hardliner. That's just where he comes from. So I think you're going to see a, a lot more of this as this uh, as the session unfolds. Yeah, for sure. Uh, higher ed wasn't the only focal point this week, though. Like I said at the beginning, things really 
picked up overall with the session this week. Uh, but Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Ybarra gave her uh, public school budget request on Thursday. And JFAC, like you mentioned, Superintendent Ybarra was there in person. Uh, I covered it remotely, and then I was able to speak with Superintendent Ybarra by phone uh, after her hearing for a little bit. Um, that hearing, uh, you know, the the uh, the K-12 hearing, we get a preview uh, every fall because the state superintendent releases her budget um, in the fall, and we got a peek at that first in August and then again in October. So we knew what was coming. Um, it was kind of a boilerplate, uh, no-frills budget uh, coming out of the year with the 5% holdbacks. Superintendent Ibarra is asking for a 2.5% increase for public school funding for next year. Uh, a little bit of history at stake for the first time in state history. She and the governor are both proposing to spend more than $2 billion, billion with a B, billion dollars on K-12 public schools next year. That would be the first time in Idaho history. And the superintendent and the governor are pretty well aligned on, on their priorities and pretty supportive of each other. Um, but one of the things that I mentioned is a good thing, which is that we get a preview of Superintendent Ybarra's budget in the summer and the fall. That almost worked against her this week, really through no fault of her own, because one of the big differences and really the biggest difference between her budget request, she's asking for 2.5% increase. Governor Little is asking for a 3.7% increase. One of the biggest requests has to do with teacher salaries and movement on the career ladder. Um, Superintendent Ibarra is asking for a smaller amount, $24 million, just over that, whereas Governor Little wants a little more than $47 million. But really, Ibarra supports the governor, is what she told me, and what happened was Ibarra submitted her budget early. She assumed that the holdbacks and the freeze on teacher pay for basically the current budget year would remain in place and go forward. So Superintendent Ybarra only proposed one year of movement, really, on the career ladder for teacher raises, whereas the governor got to wait until late December or early January to develop his budget, and he's actually talking about allowing teachers to move for both years. So they would essentially get credit for what they would have moved this year and move again next year and get paid at that higher level. Um, it but really not a philosophical difference. No. I thought you did a good job of explaining it. It sounds more complicated than it is. They're really on the same page. They both want to increase education funding beyond $2 billion. They both want to restore movement for raises on the career ladder. But other than that, kind of a no-frills budget. And so there weren't a lot of specifics with a million line items or different proposals or anything about like that. And so Superintendent Ibarra really focused on the journey that schools have been on since March. You had that, that great quote at the beginning of the episode uh, about how Ybarra said to the legislators that we've really disproven the method or <laughs> disproven the rumor uh, or the belief that schools are slow moving and slow to respond to change. And she talked about all those changes between closing schools suddenly in March and shifting to online learning and then uh, everything changing, you know, bouncing back and forth between schools being open and then hybrid learning and remote learning. She talked about how difficult um, that was and kind of this unprecedented challenge that schools have been through. And she said it wasn't perfect. Not everything went as well as what 
we would have liked, but she said she's proud of the educators in the system uh, for stepping up and, and for focusing on student learning, even with all these disruptions, even though it wasn't perfect and nobody was, I mean, I don't think it was ideal for anybody. I don't think anybody's in denial about that. Um, but yeah, so more of a, uh, talking about the journey and where we've been and the challenges ahead, rather than focusing in on specific line items, because it was just kind of a boilerplate, no frills uh, proposal. Right. And, and, I've, and I think I've said this before, but I think it's kind of where I still find myself as I think about the K-12 budget. There really aren't any new programs here. There aren't any big surprises. Right. I mean, no huge so, new initiatives. And Ibarra are, are sticking with some tried and true programs. They're, they're playing the hits here. They're talking about, you know, more money for teacher pay raises. They're talking about more money for advanced opportunities. They're talking about, you know, $20 million for summer reading programs to to supplement the literacy program. These are all initiatives that have been pretty popular with legislators over the past several years. You're sitting on a record surplus. The money is certainly there for all of these initiatives for kind of a no frills, you know, continuation K-12 budget. While I think you're going to have a real fight over the higher education budget, I would be surprised if there's a whole lot of turbulence over the K-12 budget. You've got little in Ibarra and basic agreement. You're not really, uh, breaking a whole lot of new ground here. Uh, the money's available. Uh, we'll see. And I, I can be proven wrong, but I'm having a hard time seeing where there's going to be a whole lot of fireworks uh, over the K-12 budget. Maybe, you know, maybe some things, you know, some details along the way, some unexpected surprises, you know, like we saw last year with the unexpected surprise of, uh, you know, the move to shift 18 IT and data management positions away from uh, Ibarra's shop and putting it under the State Board of Education shop. We didn't see that coming, but I, I think when you talk about programs like literacy and the career ladder and advanced opportunities, I think there's a lot of support in the legislature for all of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that there are still some legislators who want to scrutinize the spending a little bit, who have some questions about you know, okay, if our schools were closed, what did we what did we spend our resources on? I think some legislators want a little bit better understanding of where some of the coronavirus relief funds have gone and maybe where some of the new allocations are going to go. But yeah, when I look at this budget, it's really about continuing programs that have been in place. Uh, in terms of new initiatives, there's just a, a couple uh, but really, the, it, it's about keeping existing programs in place. It's about increasing funding for teacher pay. And then some of that increase is just driven by statute. It just, you know, uh, it, 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 the kids show up, you have to pay for them sort of a thing. Um, but uh, yeah, we've, we've got the highlights. Uh, coverage from all week is at the homepage, idahoednews.org. A separate article on Superintendent Ibarra's budget presentation, separate articles on each of the uh, higher ed presentations. But uh, I mean, the, the budget setting is really what drives the session. And that's how I think of it after, you know, following it for more than 10 years now, the budget really drives the session. And so we're starting to see things pick up. It, it really does. And I'm glad you kind of brought up the, uh, the new federal stimulus law. And, you know, as this budget process drives this legislative session, as it always does, one of the things I'm really going to want to watch closely and, and do some more reporting about is this infusion of money that's coming off of the second coronavirus stimulus uh, law. Uh, big money for the education system. Um, K-12, the, the school districts stand to receive 
$176 million of, of new money off of this uh, federal stimulus law. Higher education, uh, Matt Freeman from the State Board of Education was saying this week, higher ed is going to see about $72 million out of this uh, new stimulus law. Now, $18 million of that goes for direct student aid. It goes right in the, the, the pockets of students to cover their losses. But $54 million plus for the eight colleges and universities, the, state, the eight public colleges and universities to, to use uh, maybe to offset some revenue losses that they're still experiencing. That's a lot of money coming into the education system, and it's coming in very late in the process. I mean, you know, legislators are going to have to process this funding on top of the state funding, on top of the, the state uh, funding requests and the recommendations from the governor. So really a moving target and, and, a, and a big X factor right now is this federal money. And it's, you know, something I want to take a much closer look at in, in the weeks to come. Yeah. days and weeks to come. It's uh, on my list of stories to do. We've got to sort out what this money means and how it might uh, be spent and how it might affect the, uh, the debate. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I'm going to keep an eye on in the days and weeks to come is House Education Committee picked up on Friday after uh, a little bit of a slow, methodical start uh, to this session. Uh, in quick time, House Education introduced three new bills on Friday morning. Two of them have to do with school closure authority. We're going to take a closer look at those. One involves uh, the K-12 public schools. The other involves school closure authority at the higher education level. Those were just introductory hearings this morning. And so if those are going to move forward, they will be back at the House Education Committee uh, for a full hearing uh, in the days or weeks to come, I'll keep an eye on that. There are also a mention too uh, on that on that same topic. Uh, Sherry Barr is talking about a bill that hasn't been introduced yet that would make the default be in person learning, and that you would only have school closures under an emergency. And she's getting some pushback from superintendents who feel like this is a an affront to local control. That bill hasn't even been introduced yet, so we're going to see multiple bills the session about the issue of school openings and school closings. Yeah, and that's not a surprise. Uh, we pegged that as one of the five issues to watch uh, heading into the legislative session. Some of that's even a holdover, Kevin. Uh, there's these interim legislative committees that meet over the summer or meet when the legislature's not in session. And just before the special session or the extraordinary session from August, maybe, uh, there was an education interim committee that was hoping uh, to have school closure authority considered during the special session. Governor Little didn't go along with that. He didn't uh, add that as one of the topics to the agenda for the special session. So there's been some uh, pent-up energy around uh, that topic, and it sort of relates to, in a broader way, uh, separation of powers in, in this turf war over who has authority to do what, especially with the coronavirus pandemic being the backdrop, right? You've written about that several times. And, and that was the big topic that flared up last week. You know, we have, we've had the continuing back and forth between the governor's office and the governor's allies and legislators over separation of powers. We saw the House pass a resolution regarding uh, public gatherings, which would also include uh, school sporting events. So, you know, that issue is, you know, that separation of powers issue in general is going to be a defining uh, topic this session. We talked about that last week. Um, I think the events of the past week have just sort of underscored 
that this is going to be a big topic. Yeah. There were a couple of things, Kevin, that you covered earlier in the week um, that I sort of moved past quickly when we were talking uh, about higher education. Uh, but I, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about scholarship applications now or if you want to talk about um, bridging the digital divide. I didn't know if you wanted to spend a little bit of time on either of those topics before we start to, to wind down here, but I apologize. I kind of moved past those. No, no. I think it's uh, – let's, let's look back to both of them really quickly because – I was struck by a couple of uh, a couple of things we heard in the Education Week presentations in JFAC. On Monday, uh, Debbie Critchfield, president of the state board, talked about the pivot and all of the pivoting that uh, the education system had to do from March on and, and the state board's you know, efforts. There are multiple meetings. I think she said that this board met something like 32 times <laughs> since March, uh, a lot of meetings that you covered. Yeah. Uh, or met on almost a weekly basis. But one of the things she talked about was the way the state has used $30 million of federal money to get more computers into the hands of K-12 students, K-12 staff, to bridge that digital divide. But even at that, the number that really kind of jumped out at me from her was we're still about 30,000 computers away from where we would need to be to have a, a true one-to-one -one system. So that's an ongoing challenge for the state. And... Um, Kurt Liebeck, uh, who was a state board member who really worked on this issue a lot last summer, he'd said earlier in the session, well, yeah, you know, not only is it a matter of getting the computers and getting to one-to-one, -one, but then you've got all this maintenance and you have to keep the, the network current and keep the equipment up to date and relevant and usable. So it's an ongoing challenge, but it's a good sense of where we are and how we've gotten to this point and how we're still working on it. That was one. The other thing that you mentioned, um, the college scholarship story, um, Matt Freeman, again, the, the executive director of the state board, he was busy this week. He was yeah. at committee meetings all week, um, talked about the opportunity scholarship and the applications for the opportunity scholarship. Basically, right now, the applications are about 10% lower than they were at this time a year ago. And he said that these are numbers that worry him, not just the numbers for the Opportunity Scholarship, but the, the completion rate of you know, parents and students filling out a FAFSA, a, a federal financial aid form. Yep. Those numbers are down relative to where they were a year ago. And his concern is that that might be a sign that enrollment next fall might be lower you know, on the colleges and university campuses. On the heels of some pretty spotty enrollment numbers this year in the middle of the pandemic. So definitely something we're going to want to watch really closely in the months to come because, uh, you know, higher ed enrollment is, you know, it's my big topic this year. It's a project I've been working on all year. So those numbers really, really caught my attention. And we wrote, I wrote about those. You can go back onto the website and see all those, uh, all those numbers. Uh, that was a story I wrote on Wednesday. So you'll have to kind of scroll down the site a little bit to find it, but it's there. Yeah, absolutely. One of the other big stories that uh, broke this week, uh, our reporter Sammy Edge and Nicole Foy from the Idaho Statesman teamed up uh, on Thursday for a story about uh, out of the Wilder School District, families have filed a civil rights complaint against the district saying the district didn't provide sufficient services for English language learners or students with disabilities. And that relates to um, kind of a, a well-publicized um iPad program, right, out of that district? The iPad program that you covered a couple of years ago when Ivanka Trump... And I stood out in the rain while Ivanka Trump went to 
Wilder Middle School or whatever it was. And you, and you still haven't forgotten that you were standing on the rain. That's, that's No. That's uh, a lasting memory of this. Yeah, it's a lasting memory. But uh, that has nothing to do with the story. It's actually an important story. Uh, really just, and some really unsettling uh, developments out there. Yeah, uh, yeah, for sure. Concerning allegations, uh, Sammy has that story from Thursday. www.idahoednews.org is the place to check that out. Another great partnership between Sammy and Nicole. Uh, they worked together uh, for more than a year uh, on what they called the Latino Listening Project, uh, but great partnership between the Idaho Statesman and Idaho Education News, and we're proud of our partnerships and I just want to uh, give a quick tip of the hat to all my friends uh, at the Idaho Statesman for what they're going through. Uh, I see them out there doing honest journalism every day uh, and it's important uh, now more than ever to support local news and local original reporting. Uh, so shout, shout out to my good friends at the Idaho Statesman and I am happy about the partnerships that we have with them. No. Uh yeah, we're we're really blessed that we have you know a, a good partnership with the statesman. We've had partnerships too with, uh, with public radio, public television. It's uh, you know it's been a challenging time for journalists in this valley, but uh, you know I look around and I see, I think I see more talented journalists across multiple platforms than maybe I've seen in 20 years in this community. That's uh, that's a good thing, and you know we're we're proud to work alongside them all. Yeah, absolutely we are. I think that's everything that I wanted to get to. It's a full week. This week really tees up uh, more action that will drive the debate uh, throughout the rest of the legislative session. Uh, three weeks down, not sure how many more to go, uh, but we're off and running and the action's picking up. It always means a lot to us that you check in with us and spend time with us as we break down this ever-complicated intersection of education policy and education politics. Thanks again. I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe, get a vaccine if you can, and have a good week.